live on digital recorder from beautiful Kodiak, Alaska. Steve Mursky here with Scientific American Science Talk, reporting live for me from cabin 6168 on the MS Amsterdam as part of Bright Horizons Scientific American Cruise number 22. For more information on that, you can go to scientificamerican.com slash travel. I'm stepping out onto the veranda here. It's a beautiful sunny day. At 7 a.m. Alaska time, it was 48 degrees, but they did anticipate a high of 68, and it's warming up rapidly, and it's a spectacular day. We've had exceptionally good and lucky weather while we've been here. A little rain at first in Ketchikan and Juneau, nothing serious, and then just beautiful clear skies in Anchorage, Homer, and now Kodiak. Going to head back into the room. The music you hear is coming from the TV, Channel 41 on the television, and uh, all the rooms here on, on the ship features uh, a bow-end camera, um, a front-end camera, I should say. The front of a ship is called the... Bow. The Bow. That was Robin Lloyd, news editor at Scientific American. And uh, Channel 41 gives you this, this view of what we're sailing into at all times with a lovely classical music soundtrack. Of course, we're in port right now, so we're not sailing anywhere. Then if you switch down to Channel 40, you get the information that I've been sharing with you. So we are in port in Kodiak. There's a map here, so we're, we're south of Homer, where we were yesterday, and even further south from Anchorage, where we were the day before. Our position is 57 degrees, 47 minutes north exactly, and 152 degrees, 25.73 minutes west. Present air humidity, a balmy 74%. And our uh, parent winds out of the southeast at 5 knots. We've, we've traveled over 2,000 nautical miles since we left Seattle on the 25th. 24th, on the 24th, that's right, Sunday the 24th, we have, and on the screen it now says the total cruise distance at this point has been 2,151 nautical miles as we follow the coastline, although we did cruise straight across from the Juneau area to uh, Anchorage along the Gulf of Alaska, or within the Gulf of Alaska. It's... uh, stays light late. It's 9.04 p.m. is the sunset at the present position. And sunrise is about 7.12 a.m. Present air temperature, 15 degrees centigrade for you centigrade fans. And for us poor Americans, it's 59 degrees Fahrenheit, but climbing. Supposed to get up to 68. 48 when we woke up this morning. 68 by this afternoon. Lots of sun We've been very lucky with the weather. And um, so the last time I spoke to you, we were in Anchorage, but we had just come from Juneau, and you you heard tales of J.D. the cabbie. We had a spectacular day in the Chugach Park and did a pretty strenuous hike along the Powerline Trail in the Chugach, which included some climbs over the tree line. 
I think we did about seven miles, yeah. And uh, it's you're you're in a valley between two ranges of mountains, not too high, maybe between three thousand and five thousand foot peaks, I think, along both sides. But you're you're just walking down in in this wide valley between them, and uh, it's a landscape unfamiliar to me from come from New York City. And we we were there a couple of days ago, late August, so uh, we unfortunately didn't see any moose, but we were told that if you're there in October, the moose are all over the place looking for each other to make the next generation of moose, of mooses, of meese, mostly moose. And um, they, are, they are alleged to bellow loudly and lustily. So if you happen to be in Anchorage in October, I highly recommend hitting the Chugach Trail. So we went from Anchorage down to Homer, where we were yesterday, and we were disappointed. Uh, it was Labor Day, so everything was basically closed in downtown Homer, but we did go out to what they call the Spit, and we were told by Christy Keller, the copy chief at Scientific American, that uh, we should look for tents on the spit. Her sister, apparently years ago when her sister was in college, would work the salmon canneries there in the summer. And to save money, a lot of the college kids would go up there to work the summers and make a fair amount of money quickly in the salmon canneries. I mean, I'm assuming they're working 16-hour days, and you know, six, seven days a week, and then putting all that money away and going back down to college in the fall. But they live out on the spit in tents because, uh, you know, it's cheaper. And there weren't that many tents out there, a half dozen maybe, because school's already started. And I'm not sure if that custom among the college kids is still in effect. But there definitely were people camping and living out on the spit. Looked like for extended periods based on some fire pits and uh, some of the other indications of people living in tents for long periods if you get my drift. Uh, one of the things that I love to do when I'm in small towns is listen to local radio. And Homer really fit the bill for a small town that might have some interesting radio. And I did record some of you know what I happened on. So let me share that with you right now. Helping us to bring the flea market along on a holiday on this Labor Day. You're on the air. Hello. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, you were talking about some health care, uh, some offices, and I was wondering if, if you could tell me where the one is in Soldotna. Um, well, I wasn't talking about health care. Are you sure I had the right radio station? If uh, I, can, I thought uh, I heard on the radio you were going to announce that today on Tradio. Okay, well, this is flea market. It's not Tradio, so you may have the other oh, station. Oh, okay, I'm sorry, sir. Okay, all right. No problem. All right. Have a good day. Yep. That happens a lot. Uh, you're on the flea market. Hello. Good morning. I'd like to sell a 16-foot uh, flatbed trailer. I had the trailer built to haul a 1962 Studebaker Lark on, and I've uh, sold the Lark and uh, don't have any more need for the, the trailer. For you, uh, for you young folks out there, the Studebaker was a car. 
Um, I I love this kind of show. I used to host it for a half an hour, 15 minutes a day. I forget how long it was because I've tried to block out that whole period of my life. Um, this was in the mid to late 1980s. I was working at a little radio station in upstate New York, WMCR, AM and FM, Oneida, New York. It was such a small station. It was, um, it was well, you, you had to go outside to change your mind. <laughs> you, um, it, it was not 24 hours a day. We, we shut down at 10 p.m., and I would crank up the generator for our 6 a.m. sign-on in the morning. I would get to the station at 4.30 in the morning. And um, at about 10.30 or 11 o'clock for 15 or half an hour, 15 minutes or half an hour, I would host one of these swap shop shows. He's calling it the flea market. A lot of places call it Tradio. I think we called it uh, the swap shop, but I honestly can't remember for sure. Let's listen some more. All right. Well, uh, move to Homer. That'll fix it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm 82, and I think it's a little late now. (laughs) Uh, You know, there is a thing you can do. There's something called a loop antenna. Uh, Whereabouts do you live in Anchorage? Uh, Out towards the airport. Out towards the airport? Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, Do you know about the AM loop antennas? Negative. Okay. Uh, you can call me after the program, but basically you just, uh, you, you, this, uh... So it sounds like this gentleman from Anchorage is, uh, interested in being able to hear this show, which is on a small, uh, radio station here in Homer, so the host has given him instructions on how to boost the signal so he can hear about all the bargains available in Homer from his home in, in Anchorage. So, um, when I was hosting a show like this... We would get a lot of these calls where, you know, the guy's got the flatbed. Guys are always trying to get rid of old tires. And um, I remember there was one fellow who I think the entire time that I worked there was trying to get rid of a goat dehorner. He would call a couple of times a week, and the goat dehorner never seemed to sell. I assumed that a goat dehorner was, as it sounds, something to get rid of the horns on your goat. But uh, back then we didn't have an internet, so I remain forever ignorant. Younger generation, I'm sure, has never heard of Studebakers. One of the really interesting things about the Scientific American Cruises is is the, the passenger uh, backgrounds and for example, we, we have a woman here who was in the Army Corps of Engineers. We've got a, a mathematician from Cambridge who's part of the contingent who, who just came on board for the touring and to listen to the lectures from the assembled faculty. We've got a retired California Supreme Court judge. And we also have Mrs. Asprey, who it turns out let me just double-check her name here. She gave me her card. And Mrs. Asprey worked on the Manhattan Project. Margaret Williams Asprey. And uh, she is 92 and a half years old. And she's the author of a book called A True Nuclear Family, which may be of particular interest to historians of science, historians of that era, and uh, historians of women in science. Uh, she was uh, part of the team on the Manhattan Project. And Neil Bauman, who runs the Bright Horizons Cruises for Scientific American, did a short interview with her following 
one of the talks. I'm going to play that for you now, and I'm going to sign off now. So enjoy Neil Bauman talking to Manhattan Project veteran Mrs. Asprey. As a teenager, I used to cry because I had to choose between being a mother and being a, 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 a scientist, which is what I desperately wanted to be. I had fallen in love with the astronomy when I was a teenager. So uh, when at the University of Chicago, I became a chemistry student. And there I was studying from 1941 to 1943. And in 43, I had lost my, <laughs> I ran out of money. And so I got a job working on what turned out to be the Manhattan Project. And I, we, what we did was we spent time a analyzing samples that were sent from Hanford, Washington of uranium. And we analyzed for how they would work with absorbing neutrons. A after I had been there for a year, they sent my a man that was to be my husband there. He was in the Army. And we met in, in February and were married in May. Then, then we went to Berkeley where my husband went to graduate school and, and got a degree in, in uh, dance degree in chemistry. And we went then to Los Alamos. And I found out that I didn't have to choose because I spent the next 20 years raising seven children. And then I went back to school and got my degree in math and chemistry. And there, then I went to work at Los Alamos working on plans for atom bombs or for calculations for atom bombs. So, uh, I didn't have to choose. I, I just did them sequentially. So, so were you at the maiden facility in uh, New Mexico, I guess that was? Oh. I know that people think that all of us, that things only happen at Los Alamos. That's not true. The main start was in Chicago because it was there that they built the, the Fermi and then built the first reactor that actually operated under the West Sands. And that was right across the street from where I was studying chemistry. So we did a lot of the work there in Chicago. And then we only came to Los Alamos in 49. So it, it went on both ways. Did they tell you it was top secret from the moment you started? Yes, we were absolutely told that we could not say a word about this to anyone, to anything. And as a 20-year-old girl, this most shocking to me because my father had been down where, in, where Oak Ridge was being built, down in Tennessee. And he came back about this fabulous place they were building. And he, I knew what it was all about, and I couldn't tell him. So you were measuring um, emissions, neutrino emissions from uranium? No, of, of neutron absorption. Okay. You were obviously exposed to a lot of uranium then. How is it you're yeah. still alive? Yeah. <laughs> well, they told us we'd probably all be deformed and abnormal and all the rest of it. So anything wrong with me, I can blame on that. <laughs>
But my children were all fine, and they all managed to graduate from college, so obviously it didn't affect them much. So they, presumably they didn't know that these things were that dangerous, but they thought you might have some deformity? They didn't know. <laughs> we, we all rumored about, you know, what, what it would be like if we got there. But um, mostly, I don't think most people ended up having trouble because of it. Did you meet Oppenheimer? I, I've heard him lecture, but I never met him. I met Fermi, I, I, Enrico Fermi was uh, well worth meeting, he was a very nice person. And uh, I, I met some of the others. But I, oh yes, we had one man, James Bird, who was just down the hall from me, he had come from, from Germany. And that's another thing I should say. We were not building it to drop on Japan. We were building it for, to drop on Germany because we thought that the Germans were building a, a reactor and that they would eventually drop them on us. And so we wanted to get there first. So you knew pretty much from the start of your employment that you were building a bomb, a, a, a nuclear bomb. Well, the first few weeks we didn't, and then they thought we should know. And they, they came and talked to us about just what was we were trying to do and how we were trying to do it. The, the, the fact of fission had only been discovered in 1937. And so it, it couldn't have been built before that because nobody knew the fact. I started in 1943, in, in uh, March of 1943. And uh, at that time, I remember when the first sample plutonium arrived, it was about that big, you couldn't even see it. And they, they were all direct, all protected because they didn't know anything about plutonium or what it would be like. And so my husband was the one that figured out the chemistry of plutonium, which they used later to, to take the uh, samples from the reactors at the Hanford and sort out the plutonium from the from the uranium and so which of course is much easier than trying to just sort out the uh, fissionable uranium which is uh, which is what they were doing at, at Oak Ridge but at Hanford they were they made the new reactors and the new reactors they got the plutonium out of that and then when they got the plutonium, they sent it to Los Alamos. And Los Alamos is the one that put them together. And Trinity site, the test on Trinity, the um, was the the plutonium. The, the, the plutonium uh, uranium is very easy to make a bomb because all you do is just push two two plumps chunks of plutonium together. I mean, of uranium together. Plutonium is not so easy because plutonium, you have to either find a way to get the plutonium all together. And this is not so easy and it turned out to be quite a problem. And so what they, one of the main things they did at Los Alamos was it, they, they fixed it sort of like a basketball, uh, like a volleyball. And, and then, then they put uh, uranium tests, I mean uranium 
parts on on certain parts, and then that that pushed them all together. And you can't do this easily. And so they were not at all sure that was going to work. And that's why they had the Trinity test is to find out whether that this was going to work or not, because they didn't know whether it would work. No, I was. I, I've been there since, but I was not there at the time. Uh, what we were doing was just testing whatever sample they sent us, and most of the they they would tur shut down a reactor in Hanford, and then when they would try to start up again, it would start up, and they didn't understand why. And they, so the main thing we were testing is neutron absorption of samples from various parts of the reactor to see whether they it. What 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 the neutron absorption of those different parts were? Do you know if they were enriched uranium samples? They could they could have been anything. We didn't even worry about that. That wasn't our problem. <laughs> they would. Somebody they, else was collecting that information from you and making sense of it. Well, we would. We were part of a team. We were part of a team, yeah, yeah. and we would report what results we got. And, and they might be very, very uh, absorbent of uranium, of, of neutrons, and it may not. But all we did is take the sample they sent us, and we would test it for neutron absorption. Were there other women at the lab as well? What? Were there other women at the lab? Very few. There were a few, but not very many. pay much attention to that the fact that they, they treated me just like another person. <laughs> I, I, I give them a lot of credit for that too. They mostly were treated me like a, another human being. How well known was it at the time that what? How, how well known was it at the time that Fermi had got a pile operating just across the road from you? Was it well known or No, nobody knew it. Did you hear the question, how well known was it that Fermi had a pile across the street? Uh, yes, it, it, here in the heart of Chicago, he had one operating, <laughs> and, and nobody knew about it. I didn't even know about it at first, once I started, or I, I heard about it, but... That's true. <laughs> they didn't know whether it would work. Well, all they did is they pulled out pulled out the rod, which had had neutron absorbers in it, and when they pulled it out, why well, gradually the react radiation moved up and up and up and up. Not sand, uh, of of um, neutron absorbers. And, and so he was standing on top of it with an axe, so in case he had, <laughs> it had to go. Yes, that's a, that was true. 
Thank you, Marge. Okay, so formal night tonight. See you all in the dining room in an hour and 15 minutes. That was very interesting. The, the person who invented the shaped charge for the plutonium was Bob Christie, yes. and I knew him. Oh, he died you? just a couple of years ago. Oh, really? And uh, so I saw him every day at Caltech. It, it was hard, hard work. Oh, it yeah. was not an easy that was, problem. That was uh, a, a quite difficult thing to figure out. And von Neumann was important because, and Hans Bader, because they had to figure out how the shock waves propagated and how they, yeah. how they interacted. Yeah, how yeah. They reflected. And they, it was basically a lens. It was designed it was as a like lens, lens because it, right. you have to have the waves uh, add together in the right way. And, and that, so they would push the... Uh, Plutonium to the yeah. center. Yes. 